All right. Happy Thanksgiving to everyone. We're hoping you're having a wonderful time with family. Thank you for tuning in for part two of our two-part interview with my father, John Freitas, who is a police officer with the Los Angeles Police Department, as well as a homicide detective. Part one, we talked about his experience with the Academy and working patrol in 77th Division. And in part two, we're going to be talking specifically about his experience as a homicide detective with the LAPD. I want to remind everyone that we will be talking about some cases that may be a little bit rough for young ears. I want to thank you for joining with us. Have a happy Thanksgiving, but also wanted to give you that heads up in case you might want to listen to certain parts of this a little bit later on. Once again, thank you for joining us. And we're going to jump into the interview right now. This episode, as always, brought to you by Good Ranchers. All right, so we, we had a good idea of what Rampart looks like overall. What, what's your, you, you, you get over to Rampart, you're a detective, but you're working robbery first. Correct. How did you get into homicide at Rampart? Well, one of my old partners from patrol made detective a few months before I did, and he went to Rampart, and he ended up at Rampart Homicide. And then I came up there, and he known that I had um, about four and a half, five years of homicide experience from South Bureau. And I said, yeah, I'd, I'd really like to get back into homicide. And they didn't have an opening right yeah. at that at that time, but he was talking to the to the boss about me. I had gone in and introduced myself to the boss. And about six months after I got there, a spot opened up, and um, you know, the boss Vito Chicoria asked me if I was still interested in going, and I said, "Yeah." And and so they they took me into the homicide unit there in June of '94, and um, I got in. And I was assigned with a detective, um, Dennis Hall. And Dennis at that time had about 30 years on the job and he was he was getting close to retirement. And uh, he had just picked up a case right before I got there. And um, the victim was was Asian, was Cambodian. And he was at a uh, at a bus stop on Sunset Boulevard. And somebody drove by and, and shot him and he died and no witnesses. It was it was early in the morning. Uh, no witnesses. Um, only evidence at the scene was a single shell casing from a forty-five automatic. And um, the kid had no gang ties that we could find. Um, the victim. The victim. Um, that was kind of a sad cultural case. We've. I was looking, Denny had not con been able to contact the family yet. And I helped him locate where the family lived. And, and uh, they they were from Cambodia. Um, we found out what dialect they spoke. And, and we have um, an Asian crimes team downtown out of the administrative building. And I called them and I said, do you have anybody that speaks this dialect? And they said, yeah. So I gave them the family's phone number. I said, could you make arrangements, good time for them that we could come over and and, uh, and talk to them about this, see if they had any information. And they said, sure. And they called back and gave us a time and they were going to meet us over there. And we get there and the the mom has has, you know, made us like, cookies and yeah. has a full tea service for us. And, and the detective from Asian crimes is explaining that this is just kind of a, a, 
a cultural thing to, to welcome us and everything. And we're sitting down and they said, you know, they basically hadn't heard anything, didn't have any information about what had happened to their son. And, you know, we were asking, you know, did he have any enemies, any problems with no. And then the father looks at me and then says something to the, to the detective that's interpreting for me. And he says, oh, he says, he wants to know if you looked into his son's eyes when you were doing the investigation. And I had gone to the son's autopsy. And I said, uh, I'm not really sure what he's asking. I said, yeah, I, I, I viewed your son. I, I, I saw him. And he goes, if you look in his eyes, you'll see the reflection of the person who killed him. And the detectives explaining to me that that's kind of a belief in that culture, and I said, "Gosh, I I wish I really wish that was true." Mm-hmm. And I remember the father looking at both the detective that's interpreting and me, and and just not buying it. Yeah, and um, it, that was a that was a hard thing. Yeah. I mean, but anyway, we we went on. Denny had to go on vacation, so I was kind of borrowing other detectives out of the unit to go out and we canvassed the area around where the shooting had occurred. And uh, we found a couple and we were talking to them and they hadn't, they had heard the shot, but they didn't see anything. And the, the man indicated, he goes, why don't you go check that kid that lives? And he pointed to a street around the corner up there. And I said, who is it? He goes, I don't know who he is, but he is a gang member and he's responsible for a lot of stuff that happens around here. So I did a follow-up, and I kind of identified the guy, the the house that he lived in, and and he was a member of one of the... Rampart had a lot of small gangs, and this was a very small Hispanic gang. And um, I ran him up and uh, found out that that he had been contacted as a witness in a shots-fired call over in Hollenbeck Division, which is East L.A., and I called over there, and I had them pull that report up, and you know, officers responded to a shots-fired call, no suspects. They recovered some shell casings, and they talked to several people, and he, this kid ended up being one of the people that they talked to. And he basically, I don't know, I heard the shots and came outside, and then you guys showed up. And, and I noticed on the report that the shell casings they recovered at the scene were from a forty-five automatic. So I requested my shell casing be compared to those by our scientific investigations division. And subsequently, they said that all the extractor marks and the primer hit matched that looked like it came from the same gun. So I, I got a, uh, another detective in my office to go out with me, and there was, a, there was a restaurant across the street from where this guy lived, kind of catty corner from where the, the murder had occurred. And it had valet parking. And um, so I went over there and interviewed a bunch of the guys. And they were a little standoffish, didn't want to talk to us. And then one finally took us aside and said he was working that night. He had heard the shot and he saw a guy running from where the shot was around the corner. And he was carrying a gun. Mm -hmm. And he describes this guy running into the house where... My first witness said, why don't you check, check on that, that guy? Yeah. And so I had him 
connected to my shooting as far as someone seeing him run from the, the area of the shooting immediately after the shot fired carrying a gun. I had him contacted in another division at a shots fired where the shell casings from that shots fired matched my shots fired in there. So we did a, I went and got search warrants for the house there, which ended up being his grandmother's house and another house where his mother lived. And we did a follow-up to those and, and served the search warrants. And he wasn't at either location. The second house where his mom was, I talked to her and she said, well, you know, I don't know where he's living now. I said, well, how do you contact him? And she finally said, well, I've got a phone number. And so she gave me the phone number and, and this made me look really a lot better than I was because I knew a contact from when I was working South Bureau homicide who was a reserve officer. And when they had deregulated the phone companies, he bought a bunch of phone numbers and had his own, you know, phones put out in different places. But he also knew a bunch of people that had bought phone numbers and stuff. So I called him up and I said, if I give you a number, can you tell me where it's from? And he goes, yeah. He goes, if I, as long as I know who owns the prefix and stuff. So mm -hmm. I gave him the number. He goes, yeah, I know who owns that. Five minutes later, he called me back. And it turns out the guy was actually, the phone number went to the address in Hollenbeck Division over in East LA where the original shots fired was. So I went yeah. over there and sure enough, he was at the apartment and, and I was able to arrest him and got back and the family moved. So I never got to tell the family that we, Oh really? That we arrested the guy that had killed their son. Uh, but that, you know, when, when we were talking about get off your ass and knock on doors, yeah, yeah. that was, that was just, you know, you can call it luck or, you know, whatever, but I was knocking doors on all these houses. And then one guy said, you know, why don't you check on this guy? He's does everything in this neighborhood yeah. that, that's wrong. And, you know, one thing led to another and, and, uh, you know, we always used to say it's better to be lucky than good, you know, and <laughs> did he get convicted? Yeah. So let me, let me kind of ask that too, as a segue, cause I know there's some other cases and whatnot. When I, I think there's, again, people kind of wonder what's the process for actually you do all this work and you still got to get a DA to, to file it. Oh, yeah. So like kind of briefly, what does that process look like once you've built your case well, at this time, once you built your case and you, you know, you felt you had enough to present the case to a DA and you've made your arrest, you have basically 48 hours to file. Um, you get everything together. You get all your reports together at this time. And I don't know what the process is now, but the Los Angeles County DA's office, when you went to file a case, they required that you bring five copies of your case. So a lot of it was clerical work, yeah. was making up these five copies to make up your package. Yeah. And then you went down to the DA's office with, because he was a gang member, I was able to file this with hardcore gang unit, which is a little bit faster than going to the regular, what we call the row and getting assigned to the deputy DA of the day, yeah. you know, that was available to run your case by. Hardcore gangs were, were committed to your case. They had what we called vertical prosecution. So the, deputy DA that you filed your case with followed it through preliminary hearing and into trial. All so they the way took through. it all the way through. They took it all the way through. So in other cases, they don't do that. No, if you've got a case that you're going to what we call the row, yeah. in other words, and at that time, the only place you could really got vertical prosecution was 
hardcore gangs and up in the domestic violence unit. Okay. You would go to a deputy DA to try to get filing. And then it, if you get, if it got filed, it was passed on to another deputy DA who would handle your preliminary hearing. Yeah. And, and those guys are, are inundated with cases. They, yeah. They're running, you know, six, seven prelims a day. Is preliminary, is that to determine whether or not someone gets indicted? or Gets held to answer. If okay. you go to a grand jury yeah. and a grand jury hands down an indictment, yeah. you basically skip over the preliminary hearing. You'll go directly to trial. Okay. Now, the thing between preliminary and hearing and trial, preliminary hearings usually happen relatively in close proximity to the time of arrest. Now, there, there are ways that defense attorneys may request more time to go through discovery yeah, and it may be continued a couple of times. Um, I think some do it to as a tactic. Yeah. You know, your witness gets tired of getting called in, but yeah. along the line, they did prop 13, which allowed the detective to testify on behalf of the witness on the case. As long as you were only asking him questions that you had, that he had asked, the witness. Yeah, like if yeah. they came up with something that you didn't ask, you couldn't, you know, opine on it or yeah, yeah. or give your what your thoughts were. You had you were testifying on behalf of that witness. So that so that, what's that? So you, you take it over. You take it over to a, a DA. And, and again, with gangs, it's all vertical. But with this other one, you take it over to the DA. They say, "Yeah, we're gonna we're gonna, we're gonna take file it. it." Then it gets assigned to somebody else. Right. And then what determines whether or not it goes grand jury or preliminary? The DA's office would, and and that would happen. At the filing time. And, and very, I I think I... What's the difference between a preliminary hearing and a grand jury? Well, the grand jury has to be convened, and it's a bunch of people, citizens of the community who have been selected to serve on the grand jury, and I think it's a year service. Okay. But it's a panel of them, and basically the prosecution comes in and gives their case. The, the, the defense really doesn't have a part in it. Okay. And then based they're on just determining whether or not this goes forward. It's going to be held over for trial. Okay. So then, all right. So that's the grand jury preliminary hearing. Who's involved in that? The defense attorney, a, a defense attorney, a public defender or a defense attorney and the, and the deputy DA that's handling the preliminary hearing. And it's very, it's a very basic overview of your case, the evidence that you have. Um, and if then a judge decides, and then it? a judge decides if he's going to hold it over for trial. Okay. Okay. So what you're saying is that as long as it was domestic violence or uh, gangs, gangs at that time, you got you could have you'll have a different DA decide whether or not it gets filed. You'll have another DA go to prelim, and then after prelim, you'll have a different DA actually handle the trial. Handle the trial exactly. Wow. And and the some of the problems that that especially for like a homicide because you're going into a a preliminary hearing and like i said these these deputy da's i mean we were we were inundated with a lot of cases so are they yeah. i mean they are you know like i said they may be handling seven different cases on a given day in in preliminary or even more yeah and i remember showing up for one and um you know, my partner and I went up to see the deputy DA and say, we're here on, on this case. And she said, did you bring the gun? And you would bring, you would bring evidence sure. to your preliminary hearing. And I said, I, and I just said, no, I didn't bring the gun. And she gets this panic. Look, you, you didn't bring the gun. I said, no. And I, and I looked at my partner and he said, we, we did bring the knife. <laughs> and she, and she kind of sighed and she goes, I'm sorry. And I said, 
you haven't read it yet? She goes, I've read over all of them. I'm just, they're all running together. And, yeah. and yeah, she did a good job yeah, on, yeah. on the prelim once we got going, but you know, a little bit she nervous. Just, when, yeah, yeah. She was just, she was just assuming, oh, well, it's a murder. It must've been a gun. Yeah. Let me ask you a question. Did between a grand jury and a preliminary hearing, was there one that you as a detective preferred? Well, you didn't go to a lot of grand juries. Okay. Yeah, would I prefer that? Yeah, sure, because you just go in and basically the prosecution case, you're, <laughs> you're not cross-examined on everything. Yeah. I mean, the jurors can ask you questions. Yeah, yeah. Um, but for them to convene a grand jury, they usually saved grand juries for something that was major, major big. Okay. Um, or if there's like larger implications yeah. with respect to it. Okay. And so it wasn't something, I think I testified before the grand jury in my career twice. Okay. Um, so it, you know, it, it yeah, w was it preferable? Yeah, sure. It's, yeah. <laughs> it, it's just your case. Yeah. Um, I don't know if people realize in California, we have uh, reciprocal discoveries. So we have to give everything to the defense yeah. that we have in our case, but they also have, have to, to give us their yeah. witnesses and stuff. So we can, so we can do investigations that yeah. way. But, um, no, it, it, it was, the city council, which was kind of funny, we, the entire city, we were having a lot of homicides citywide. Los Angeles, I would imagine, in the city would average around, maybe citywide, around 1,000 murders a year, may give or take yeah. some, at, at the time that I was working. Um, and I think we talked about 77th, their yeah. record year was 162 for yeah. the year. Um, I don't know what the total amount for, for LA was that year, but that was... a a good percentage came from one of 18 geographical divisions. Yeah. Um, when I worked South Bureau homicide, out of the four South Bureau divisions, um, and I think it was 93, we did 428 murders in South Bureau. So how many, how many cases, either at South Bureau or Rampart, how many cases were detectives, were a team of detectives usually handling in a year? Um, the average, the average was sixteen to twenty-four. There were variables on that. Yeah, um, a lot of times because we, would, we what, would. What's like the FBI recommendation for that? Four cases for a team of detectives per year. Per year, and per you guys year. were handling 16, 16 to, 20. to twenty-four new cases every year. Wow. Yeah, and and to give you an idea, like at Rampart. We we were running. My partner and I were running about a seventy two percent clearance rate. Yeah. So you think about you're picking up those cases, but you're also following the cases that you've already cleared, that you've taken and gotten filings on, that are going to court. And the average on a on a murder trial from prelim to trial was about two years. Wow. And that and a lot of that was keeping track of your witnesses. Yeah. Yeah. And. Um, a lot of times we used to laugh that we spent more time looking for our witnesses than we did our suspects. <laughs> um, what, what was, what was it like? Um, what was it like of preparing for and being on the stand when you've got like a defense attorney just, cause it, it seems every, a lot of people saw like the OJ trial right. where essentially Cochran made the trial about the police rather than OJ. Right. And, and, you know, what was it like having defense attorneys? Like, was that your experience? A lot of defense attorneys try to make it, try to go after the police or? No, my, actually my experience is I would say most 
defense attorneys are ethical. Yeah. And they try your case and they and they test your evidence. That's what they're supposed yeah, to do. Sure. They're supposed to give a good defense and make sure that you did the things you were supposed to do. Now, one of the things that um, you would you would have, and it, it was the exception; it wasn't the rule. Yeah. You would have defense attorneys that were willing to imply things that maybe weren't in reality, yeah. just to confuse a jury. Yeah. Um, you had defense attorneys who would ask you a question, expecting to get the answer that they wanted and you knew the answer wasn't going to be, and they would start, you know, like maybe interrupting you or they would do the thing of, I just want yes or no. Yeah. And you know, you, I've looked to judges and said, your honor, I can't answer that question. Yes or no, without misleading the jury. Yeah. Now, sometimes a judge would say, let the, let the witness answer. A lot of times the judge might say, well, that's for the district attorney to clean up on redirect. Yeah. But either way, if that was the case, then the deputy district attorney, in case you know they weren't paying attention, <laughs> they knew now, okay, I've got to go back to yeah. this on redirect. Um, but like you would you would start an answer, and sometimes the defense attorney that wasn't going the way I I wanted it to, <laughs> and they started interrupting you. And I've I've also turned to a judge and said, Your Honor, am I going to be allowed to answer? Yeah. And I've had judges tell the defense attorney counselor, let the witness answer. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but no, I, I've I've got to say that the majority of defense attorneys that I faced were ethical. They were officers of the court. They yeah. took their job seriously, and and they weren't you know trying to mislead. Yeah. But they were going to test your evidence and make sure, and that's what they should do. They should make sure that you're doing things the way you're supposed to. Let, let me ask you another question. I think that you know, again, you you watch the cop shows and everything else. It's the interrogation. Right, it's getting somebody in the interrogation room. What it? What's a memorable experience from getting a suspect back, and you know, talking to them in the interrogation room? Well, first of all, is it anything like the movies make it out to be? I guess sometimes. Yeah. Um, for the you know, for the most part, you're you're thinking you know. I've got if if I've arrested someone and I've brought them to the station, there's a process you have to go through. Yeah, yeah. And you do advise them of their rights, their Miranda rights, um, and their answers determine you know if you're going to be going further or if, okay, that's it. We'll go ahead and if I'm if you're arrested, and I'm going to book you in. We'll go ahead and book you in, and yeah. then I'll take what I've got to the district attorney. How how often like how often was did people talk? Yeah, um, I would I would say more often than not. Yeah. I mean, you would get if you got and and a lot with gang cases, you you have people who have been through the system before, and they're from the get go. I want my attorney. Yeah, you know, and and that's King's X. Yeah, you know, it's off the table. But you also get guys that think, okay, well, I've been through the system. I'm smarter than you. I'll, yeah, I'll give you a story. All right, we're going to take a quick break to recognize and thank our sponsor, Good Ranchers. Black Friday is coming up, and Good Ranchers is letting you take advantage of their Black Friday deals right now. If you use promo code NICK, you're going to get $15 off of your order, plus free shipping and 
For a savings of almost up to, I think it's $480, you get to choose which free meat you get with your subscription. That could be top sirloin, that could be chicken breast, that could be wild caught salmon, and it can be bacon. Bacon, the superior meat, because you can wrap all of the meats with it. So go ahead and check out Good Ranchers. Use that promo code Nick. Plus, if you don't know what to get for that person that is impossible to shop for, Good Ranchers has got you covered. They now have gift boxes that you can order. Go check those out. Once again, thank you very much to GoodRanchers.com. Go check them out for all of your holiday season needs coming up right now with that Black Friday deal. It's real important, even if if the guy is, you know, feeding you a bunch of nothing. Yeah. Get it all down. Yeah. Write it down. I mean, get it on tape. And then follow up and go out and, you know, try to corroborate it. You know, show good faith that, you know, he gave me his alibi and I went out and shot it to hell. (laughs) Well, I remember you came up when, when we were going back to Iraq the second time. And we, we have very specific rules on who can conduct interrogations within the military, but then we also have things like what we call battlefield interviews or stuff like that where we're just trying to get information. And you were, you were taking us through some of the processes of, of how, to, how to do that effectively and things to look out for and, and uh, way to phrase questions and things like that. Like, do you have like a most memorable, a most memorable time in the interrogation room? Oh, probably, probably my most memorable is when Rob and I went back to New York. Okay. And that, that suspect was El Salvadorian Spanish speaking only. And, um, it was actually Rob and Chuck's case from the beginning and Rob had taken it as far as he could in Los Angeles. And he was in contact with, um, there were two suspects, a father and a son the son more than the father, but he had stayed in contact with the local area family and they came back and said they're back in, in uh, Bayside Queens back in New York. Yeah. So the 111th precinct from NYPD handles that area. So Rob had called back and, and talked to a detective in the squad there and he had an address and he asked if the guy could go out and, and, uh, check the address for him. And the guy said, yeah, I'll go out there. So he went out and said he door knocked it. No one, no one's there. And, um, came back and said, yeah, it, it looks like the apartment's empty. Okay. So Rob's still in contact with the family. There said, no, they're back there. I don't know. They may not be at that address anymore, but he's moving around and he's back in Bayside Queens. So we talked to our boss and said, look, you know, we're kind of at the place where we need to go back to New York and see if we can find him. Yeah. Our boss is looking at us. Well, don't go back. You're not going back on a vacation. If you get out there and it's not looking good, come back. Yeah. We said okay. So we flew out, went over to the um, the precinct, and and went up to the squad room, and we met a detective um, named Mo Ceruli. And Mo had about thirty years on. He was NYPD detective. You know, thirty years and. Uh, the guy that Rob had talked to on the phone wasn't wasn't in the in the precinct of that day and, and Mo goes, Who'd you talk to? And Rob told him, he says, Oh. So Mo leaves us, he goes into the squad sergeant's office and comes out and and guy John O'Hara, I mean, typical Irish, you know. <laughs> and he goes, Hey guys, you know, and he introduces himself, come on into my office. And uh Mo's telling me, you know, what you did. You got, you know, you had 
one of our guys go out to the address and and uh, he said no one's there and he goes and he looks at Mo he goes what do you got on this week he goes I don't have anything until he goes I'm going to take you off call you go you want to help these guys and Mo goes yeah sure so um, you got the address and I said yeah and he goes oh that's that's down the street here he goes yeah let's go over there and we go and the first thing we notice that there's an eviction notice on the window of the address in question, but there is a line of apartments down below that house. So Mo takes us canvassing and we start knocking on doors. And I don't know if it's because everybody, and and maybe it'd just be my ear, but everybody sounds the same in New York. (laughs) Mo can talk to anybody. Yeah. And um, I mean, it, it was just kind of comical the way he, you know, Hi, I'm Detroit with Cerule, New York City Police Department, and uh, we're doing this, and we're looking for the people. And about the third door, we knocked on the door, and this lady answered, and she says, well, um, they used to babysit for me. And, hey, do you know these people? And, and she looked, we show her a picture of, of one of the guys we're looking for. She goes, you know, he looks familiar, but she goes, you know, one of the ladies, I still call her every once in a while to babysit for me. And she goes, I got a number. And, gave us a number and we go back and Mo calls a number that NYPD has available and we find out where the number is and we go out there and and grab some people and and bring them back and they're all Spanish speaking. And Mo doesn't speak Spanish and doesn't have anyone in the squad so we grab a patrol officer and this is what we were talking about using interpreters. And so we sit down with this patrol officer and and, uh, he's talking to this woman and he asks her a question and she comes back with a pretty significant answer and he turns to me and she says he says she said no <laughs> and i said i know what no is in spanish it's no, <laughs> it's no. I, I said can you tell me everything yeah. she's saying and it goes on a little bit more and his his answers to us are a lot shorter than what she's saying to him and and i'm just kind of shaking my head and and I look over in the doorway, and the station janitor is in the doorway, and he's like motioning me to come over and talk to him. Yeah. And so I go over there, and he says, um, "He's not telling you everything she's saying." And I'm kind of like, "Well, no yeah, kidding, yeah, you know, yeah. no, no fooling." <laughs> yeah. And he goes, and he says, "These people are El Salvadorian." And I said, "Yeah." He goes, "Yeah, so am I." He goes, "I I know some of the people that she's talking about." And their family, they have an address out on out on the island, yeah, and uh, out on Long Island. So um, I go back in and kind of shut things down, and I tell Mo what what the the, the janitor, janitor had told me, and he goes, "Okay," he goes, "He gave you the address." I said, "He goes, yeah, you and John." He goes, he goes down and talks to the sergeant again, and he goes, "I want you to get." A, a Spanish-speaking detective. I don't want an interpreter. I want yeah, yeah. And he goes, okay, so I'll call over to Queensboro Homicide, see who they can get. And I can see Mo's face kind of light up. And he says, okay, he goes, this this should be good. He goes, you and John are going to run out to Long Island to check that address. Rob and I will stay here. Hopefully he's gonna. they're going to send the guy I want him to send. Well, it was a guy named George Sanchez. Yeah. So... John and I run out to Long Island in his car, get the address, check the address. No one's there. Talk to a couple of people, and they don't know, you know, if they're at work or what's going on. We head back, and George is coming in the door when we when we get back to the precinct house. 
and Mo is kind of explaining to George and we're telling him what we're doing. We've got this address to go to based on a phone number, but everybody's been Spanish speaking. He goes, okay. He goes, let's sit down. He goes, tell me about your case. And, and, um, we kind of looked at him and you want, he goes, I want the whole story. Yeah. He says, I'm a Spanish speaking investigator. I'm not an interpreter. I don't want to ask somebody a question, have them tell me something. And then me have to refer it to you to find out if they're yeah, yeah. BSing me or not. Yeah. So we sat down there for probably an hour and a half, went over all the intricacies of my case and who we were looking for and what, and what we knew about them being back in New York. And, um, we, we head out and by this time it's starting to get dark. Yeah. I mean, this is the first day that, that we're on this and we head out, we go to the babysitter's house and she, you know, very gracious, lets us in Her husband's there and everything. And, and George is talking to her and, and, you know, saying we're looking for these guys. And she goes, yeah, they've been around. She goes, there's several places. Uh, I don't know the addresses. I can take you to them. Yeah. And, um, it becomes evidence evident to Rob and I that she's attracted to George uh. and George is kind of using it to get information. <laughs> and she goes, well, I can go with you and show you these places. And I'm looking at her husband and I'm thinking, Oh gosh, we may not get out of here alive. <laughs> but anyway, she did go with us and yeah. she, you know, we, we went to several places and now it's about two thirty in the morning and she takes us to another, you know, address. And so she's just taking you guys oh, around yeah, places to place. And we're knocking on super, doors. Super healthy because of muy guapo, Georgia. Yeah, right? Yes. <laughs> and, and, but you know, it's, he's being very professional and yeah, she's, yeah. you know, she's actually helping us and she and George are talking to the people and, yeah. and then George is relaying the information that we're getting. We get to this apartment building and it's a security building. So I'm pushing the, buttons hoping that somebody's going to open the front door for <laughs> yeah. us and the guy comes out to his um stoop there to his stoop there and he's yeah what is it and well they had given they can duplicate their badges so they they had given me a detective gold shield yeah yeah so he said nypd <laughs> let us <laughs> let us in so i go up to the door and there's a little window in the door and i'm looking through it and there's a guy that looks a lot like our suspect yeah. walking towards the door and then he sees me and then he turns down and he goes down to the basement. Yeah. So the guy upstairs buzzes us in, we go in, we go down to the basement and sure enough, there he is and it's our guy. Yeah. So we don't, you know, we're in New York. We yeah. have no jurisdiction there. Yeah. So the kid did speak a little bit of English and Mo says, hold on, I'm detective Cerulli. We'd like to take you down to the station. Yeah. George comes in, interprets the guy says, okay, agrees to go down to the station with us. We don't, you know, we don't hook him up or anything. We take him down. We, his mom, we get his mom to come in and his mom sits in on this interview and we start talking and, and George is, you know, talking to the kid, but he's also relaying what the kid is saying. And the kid is denying, doesn't know anything about yeah, yeah. any of this and, and going on and on. And, and, uh, George keeps with him and we take a break and come out and let, you know, the mom and him get something to eat and get something to drink and everything. And George saying, well, he says this, 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 and I, and I'm looking, I said, that's that it. And he goes, Oh no, no, no. That was just round one. <laughs> and we went back in there and George just continued to talk to him and, and continued to talk to him and the kids looking around and every, he changes his story a couple of times. And then Rob and I are throwing things out for George to say. Yeah. And then the kids, the kid asks, he goes, what would, what would I get 
for this. And George tells me what he says. And I said, you tell him that people that didn't do this aren't interested in what they're going to get. <laughs> and George yeah. goes back and tells him the kid kind of gets wide eyed. And George yeah. is like, you know, give me more, give me more. And, yeah. and we're saying different things. And he gives it up. Really? Yeah. And admits to the entire thing. And it, and this was, he and his father were working very hard in Los Angeles and, and saving their money. Yeah, yeah. And saving it at their apartment. Yeah. And the kid comes home one day and they've got a roommate and the roommate has a narcotics problem. They come, kid comes home one day and the money is gone. And the kid's asking their roommate, you know, what the, you know, what happened to our money? Yeah. And the roommate comes up with this idea of, oh, well, you know, the manager has a pass key. He probably came in and took it. So the kid grabs him and walks him over to the manager's office. And the manager told us, he goes, they knock on the door and the kid goes, I, I'm missing a bunch of money. He says, you have a pass key and you came in and took it. And the manager goes, I, I don't go into your apartment unless you're there or I announce it or I give you a notice. Yeah. Or if I do go in and you're not there and it's because of an emergency, I have to notify you right away. Yeah. And the manager says, the kid looks at him and smiles and he's still got a hold of the other guy. He says, don't worry about it. I don't worry about it. I, I know you weren't the one that went in there. And yeah. he walks the guy back, and that's the last time the victim is seen alive oh, wow. until he's found in the apartment with multiple stab wounds and his throat's cut. Oh, wow. And the kid and his father have left town. And so, he cops to all of this? And the, he cops to all of it and says what happened and, and said you know he was in a rage and he was mad and he, you know the guy had ripped them off for all their money that they had saved. And... <clears throat> He goes through stabbing the guy and then, you know, admits to turning him over and, and cutting his throat. Wow. <coughs> so George is writing this out all longhand on a legal pad. And the mom's listening and the mom's witness to the entire interview. And the kid agrees to sign the, the statement. The mom signs it as You're a kidding. No, as a witness. And so um we we called back to Los Angeles, talked to our boss, and said, um, "Yeah, Vito, we've we we got him, and um, brought him back, and he confessed. And we're we're like now we're like forty eight hours into this yeah. from when we started yeah. and the initial stuff, and then when we find him, and then going through the interview and everything. And so um, I need I'm writing up the report right now. I need somebody to take it over to our DA's office." file it, get a warrant, and then send us back the warrant, and then we've got to go over to Queensboro. They're going to house him at the jail here, and um, we've got to go over to Queens DA and, and, and do yeah. all that and figure out, you know, if they're going to, they're going to ask him, you know, and if so he you wants guys, to waive extradition and come yeah. back. Now, the one problem that we had is when we're talking to the mom, she had, she had a lot of kids, and they were from El Salvador where yeah. they didn't have birth certificates or anything like that. And we're trying to figure out the age of her son. And she said he's ever, either 16 or 18. I'm, I'm not sure. Well, you know, I told, I told um, Mo, or the detective, we have to err on the side of caution. We have to treat him like a juvenile. So yeah. when I sent it back, they were going to take it to the juvenile DA and yeah. file it for juvenile court and everything. And Mo goes, okay, well, this about this time, it's about 
10.30 at night on the second day and everything. And, and uh, Mo says, let me call my friend over at Queensboro DA. Um, we can book him in at, at, at the Queens jail. Yeah. Um, because in New York, you commit a murder at 16, you're treated like an adult, and they will certify you down to juvenile court if there's some extenuating circumstances. Yeah, yeah. We're in California. We may try to certify you up to adult court based on the the yeah, circumstances yeah. of the case. So he said, we can, we can book him here in our adult jail. Okay. So Mo makes a call, says, yeah, he's going to meet us over at the Queen's office. He sh- said he should be there by about midnight. So we drive down. Mo calls, and each borough has its own district attorney. Okay. The guy that Mo calls is the district attorney for Queensboro. Oh, really? Yeah. It took him away from a dinner that he was at <laughs> with, like, the mayor and the other DAs. Yeah. And the guy, oh, Mo Cerulli needs me? Yeah. I'll be right there. <laughs> so we walk in, and, and older gentleman just, I mean— very gracious, and he goes, "Yeah, Mo, I was I was with the mayor, and <laughs> what do you guys got?" And we explain it to him, and he says, "Okay." And he says, "And you guys have to treat him as a juvenile." And I said, "Yeah." And I said, "Okay." He says, "I'll put this on the docket at this court for tomorrow. We'll come in. We'll explain to the judge what we've got. The judge will ask him if he wants to waive extradition. As long as he waives extradition, you're good to go. We'll house him until you get your return flight, and yeah. then you know you guys are good." And he goes, "Now." If he refuses to waive extradition, since you guys are handling him to, as a juvenile, I'll take him over to juvenile court where he doesn't get the right to waive or deny extradition, and we'll give him to you that way. <laughs> okay. Yeah. You know, and, and he says in that, he goes, and you guys, So did you guys get him back to L.A.? Yeah. No, the next day we show up at the court. Yeah. And I know you don't know what our calendar courts were like in Los Angeles, but they were a big room and there might be a hundred people in that room. And that's what this court's like. But in New York, everybody's allowed to speak no matter what part of the trial or hearing is going on. Everyone's allowed to talk. So everyone in the galley is talking and the, the DA comes out and then the judge takes the stand and and there's a a public defender that's been assigned to, uh, to handle our, our guy through this hearing. And, um, the judge makes comment that the Queensboro DA is the one is the yeah. deputy, is the DA that's yeah. standing up there. He goes, "Well, I haven't seen you in the court for a long time." He goes, "Yeah, Your Honor," and he says, "I have um, two detectives here from the Los Angeles Police Department, and you could have heard a pin drop." And everybody's really? like, "You got um, at the time that we're back there, the OJ trial is going." Oh, on. okay. So they heard LAPD, and they're like, <laughs> "And so you know, he he asked and." the uh, public defender had an interpreter there and you know, the interpreters, you know, about extradition, the kid agrees to waive extradition and they said, okay, said, we're going to house him. You detectives have to arrange for some travel. I understand. Um, Went to the defense attorney. Do you have anything else? And, and you know how you stereotype somebody Uh younger woman stockings and Birkenstocks, Round glasses, and I stereotypically made her, okay, she's not going to be a fan of the police. And she said, I just want the officers to know that, you know, although I'm not going to be counsel in in Los Angeles, he does have counsel. If they have any more questions for him, that he's he's under attorney's advice not to answer any more questions. And I understood she meant 
the case, but yeah. And the judge says, detectives, do you understand that? And I said, yeah. So we all went back into the lockup with him and she went back there with her interpreter. And when we went through the door, she completely changed and she was just all nice. She goes, do you guys need me to ask him anything for, <laughs> for the travels? And I said, well, just, you yeah. know, explain to him that we're going to arrange for our flight. Hopefully it'll be tomorrow, yeah. the next day at the latest. Yeah. It's a long flight. Is there anything that he can't eat yeah. or drink or that we need to stay away from? And she had her interpreter and she goes, nope. She says he can, he's fine with whatever they have and, yeah. and he understands and he's, he'll be with you. And yeah. Anything else? I said, no, thanks. You know, it's just as nice as everybody wow. just nice. So did, did he get second degree? No, he got first degree murder. Oh, really? Yeah. Cause, um, cause he walked her over and then walked him back. And, well, and just the, the, I mean, he had yeah. plenty of time to form intent. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And what was what was funny was the DA did not want to file this case, and the detectives that went over for us to file it, they talked her into filing it. Yeah. And then when we got him back, based on the warrant, we had to go back in and talk to her, and she said, "You know, this is a loser." I with just, a confession. With a confession. Yeah. She said, "There's there's a self defense issue because." Um, the the victim had taken a the Bosslewood oh coat, gosh yeah yeah coat rack out of the closet yeah to defend himself and I said and that justified <laughs> the suspect stabbing him numerous times and then rolling him over oh, and cutting slim. his throat yeah. well I just think that that could the defense attorney could bring that up said, okay so they when we finally got to trial we actually arranged for Mo and George to fly out for the trial yeah. And they assigned a brand new deputy district attorney to it. And his name was Hoon Chun. And yeah. he came into it saying, everybody tells me that this is a loser. I'm going to, yeah. I'm just going to lose it. And we said, no, Hoon, it's not. It's yeah. a good case. And, and the Mo and George are both said, you know, it's a good case. Yeah. You're going to be fine. He, he just, essentially, he confessed to yeah, doing it. Listen like, to your detectives. Yeah. And I mean, the confession was in front of his mom. His yeah. mom witnessed it. Yeah. Um, he signed it. it. There was no duress. There yeah. was nothing that you could even, you know, point to as questionable. And we we got into it. And and after a day or two of testifying, and then Mo taking the stand, and and Mo was great on the stand because, um, you know, they talked about when we found him at the apartment building. Yeah, and. Um, when we initially asked him his name, he lied about his name. Yeah. And the defense attorney, which she was trying to hang her hat on, was, well, you you, you placed him under arrest there. And Mo goes, no. Um, the detectives did not have a warrant for him. I didn't have cause to yeah. arrest him. I asked him if he would come back to the station and talk to us. And she said, well, he lied to you. And Mo <laughs> goes, Yeah. <laughs> And she goes, well, lying to a police officer. And Mo looks around and goes, that's against the law here? <laughs> <laughs> and she said, well, yes, false information to a police officer. He goes, I'd have half the city of New York behind bars if that was the law back there. <laughs> and it was just, he was just so good on the stand, you know, and just very, yeah. and then George, of course, was impeccable on the stand. And then Rob and I testified to our little parts in it yeah. and everything. And, you know, we went through everything and it's juvenile court. Yeah, yeah. So it's a court decision. It wasn't a jury trial, and judge comes back guilty, first degree murder. Wow! And you know, Mo and George both looked at Hoon and said, "Told you so." Yeah. Trust your detectives. Yeah. <laughs> and and uh, 
But I said, Hoon told us later when he went back to the office, he was just oh yeah, so excited because yeah. they they sent him out. He was brand new in the office, yeah. so they sent him out there thinking that he's going to fail. Yeah, and it was just it was good, and and it was it was good. It was a good ending for the case, and and uh, we actually Mo followed up when he went back to New York and got a hold of the uh, the father and the kid had said my dad didn't know about yeah, this. Yeah. I mean he brought me back to New York and technically I guess you could go for accessory after the fact but the father was cooperative came yeah. in made, gave Mo a statement yeah. things that his son had told him and yeah. Mo had somebody take a polaroid of him and the dad at the table and the dad shaking his hand and wow. uh, no it was, they they treated us very well back yeah. there and and good guys to work with all right so I guess the, the last one I wanted to ask you about, and this, I mean, and, and the reason why I'm going to ask about it is because I remember from your retirement. Um, and at retirement, it was something where it was the only time anybody could remember. It, it was funny. They, they it, <laughs> typical uh, police officers, they said, it's the only time we can ever remember an ex-wife <laughs> and a victim's family showing up to a retirement. And, um, and that was, I, I think that was one one of the, one of the last major homicides. Um, yeah, it was. It was probably I've I've been one of two primary detectives on about two hundred homicides. Um, the other one we talked about, the twelve year old. Yeah, that became the second worst case I'd ever handled. This one was the worst. Yeah. And um, by happenstance, I was filling in for a detective that was on vacation with her partner. And it was, um, <clears throat> it was a Sunday uh, morning and we got the call and it was a triple homicide in Rampart. And um, when we got to the scene, it was at a, um, an old Victorian style house that, that the family was remodeling and um, the circumstances that we got was um, the victims were a mother and two of her children. And the, the mother victim's mother lived across the street in another house. And um, the victim's sister and brother-in-law were also there and were still very close friends. But um, we go in to do our investigation, and it's a, it's a big house, two-story house, and um, the mom is down in the kitchen and multiple stab wounds. Um, and then the two little girls are in a downstairs room, which was where they would watch TV, and they were lying on a blanket, and they each had multiple stab wounds. And they had apparently fallen asleep the night before and, and the mom just left him there on the blanket. And, um, <clears throat> while we're doing the, the crime scene, the victim's sister comes out and we had, we had done a canvas and we had found a point of entry on the side of the house. And we were having, um, detectives help us with the canvassing and talking to witnesses. There was a two story apartment building next door to this house. And they found a guy on, the second floor who woke up the night before and um, heard somebody 
downstairs and he looked out and he saw this guy going through the, the window and, and he said, I even called out to him and the guy turned around and said, hey, I live here. And he recognized it, the person as being the husband of the mother victim. And so he didn't think anything. Yeah, he does live there and didn't think anything. Well, what it turned out is they were estranged. The husband had moved away, but he had been there earlier in the day and, and the sister had been there too. And the husband apparently was using narcotics. He had, he had a past. And that day the mom told him, that's it. I'm, we're going to get a divorce. I'm, I'm done with you and your antics and, and basically sent him off. So, you know, we had narrowed in our suspect is the estranged husband. Nobody knew where he was living at the time. We're doing the, we're doing the crime scene. The sister comes out and says the husband just called over to the mom's house. And the sister and she, this family is just remarkable all the way around. But the sister maintained her composure and, and, and said, oh, and called him by name. Hey, what are you doing? And he says, oh, nothing. You're over at mom's house. She goes, yeah, I'm just, I'm visiting over here. And she just acted like, you know, nothing had happened. And, and uh, what are you doing? And he said, well, I've got Melanie. We're going to go to Colorado and see my mom. And she goes, oh, that's cool. If you get a chance, bring Melanie by so I can say goodbye. And this Melanie was, was the third daughter. The third daughter from from the house. So they come out and tell me that he'd called. So I tell the detective I'm working with, I'm going to call um, Detective Headquarters Division and have them put a trap on their phone just in case in this circumstance we can do that. And in case he calls back, see if we can get a location on him. Well, the sister's husband came out and he's standing in the street and I'm in the car and I'm on the radio talking to, you know, detective headquarters division on a tactical frequency and asking them to put a trap on this number. We're doing a homicide investigation. We have an outstanding um, victim, uh, female victim, possibly kidnapped. We need to, you know, we need to find out where this guy's calling from. And while they're doing that, I look up at the, at the husband and he's looking down the street and he says, there he is. And I get out of the car and he's pointing to this white car that has now stopped way at the far end of the block next to a park that's there. And I can see the guy get out and he goes around and he picks up the little girl out of the passenger side and he starts to walk into the park. Now you've got to imagine this scene in front of the house is a, a big van from scientific investigations, a bunch of black and whites, yellow crime scene tape and you know, a bunch of detective personnel standing around. So I tell one of the, one of the patrol officers to get in your car, go around to Toberman park and cut off. And I take off running after the guy. Vito takes off after me and, and I get to the park and it's a Sunday afternoon by this time. And it's full of families. There's like three or four soccer games going on. And the only thing that saved me was everybody there was about my height or less. And the father is about 6'3". So I can see him, and he's still carrying the little girl. So I take off running through the soccer games, and Vito's following me. And I get to him, and he finally stops, and he turns around. And I said, and, and I was at low ready, and I said, put her down. Well, and 
Beknownst to me, the, the brother-in-law had also followed us. So when he put her down, she ran to the brother-in-law and he grabbed her and hugged her and, and walked her away. I took the suspect into custody. Black and white came around and I patted him down and everything and, and I put him in the back seat of the car. And I told the two officers, I said, take him back to Rampart, put him in an interview room, get his clothes from him, give him something to wear, I don't care what it is, get his clothes from him, put him in paper bags, separate them from each other. Don't say anything to him, don't advise him of his rights, if he needs to go to the bathroom or anything, go with him, watch him, write down anything he says. So they take him and we go back and, and Ron, the partner I'm working is still working the crime scene. Um, we end up when when we get back, the sister tells me that there's what looks like blood on the little girl. She's still in her nightgown. It look look like blood. I said, "Could you do you have something to put her in that we can collect that from you?" And so they collected that and gave that to the uh, SID personnel that was there to to book into evidence and and uh, test later. And, you know, we went back and finished our crime scene investigation, and we were probably there. We got there probably about 10 or 11 in the morning. We finished up the crime scene about 9 o'clock that night. And um, I remember saying to Ron, when we, when we get back to the station, I said, I'll bet you anything he's asleep. He goes, you think so? I said, yeah. He didn't say anything. He didn't ask anything. He, he pulled up on the street where he knows his wife and kids live, and there's a bunch of police vehicles and crime scene tape and everything else. And when I stopped him and, and went to hook him up, he didn't say, what's going on in my house? Where are my kids? Where's my wife? I said, he's sleeping because he knows why he's there. He doesn't care. And we walked in, looked in the interview room. Sure enough, he's asleep on the table. And uh, we went in to interview him, and he wasn't going to say anything. And during during the thing, Ron said something, and I thought about it later, and you could construe it to like there was a survivor. And he got this look on his face, and neither one of us caught it at the time, and then we just went on, and he invoked his rights, and we shut down the interview right then. And then I, when I'm thinking back on it, I told Ron, I said, you know, when you said this, this, and this, he got a look on his face like he was a little bit panicked, and we should have gone with that, that one of them survived. But, you know, we didn't catch it in time, and uh, come to find out, I'm, I'm, we're still working on the crime scene the next, or on the reports and everything, the next morning we had booked him in, and I get a call from an L.A. County Sheriff's detective. And apparently, because of the nature of the case, it being a woman and two children, and it was a three-year-old and a six-year-old, um, and they named the suspect, the victim's husband, they named him. This detective calls, and he says, so you've got so-and-so. And I said, yeah. He goes, well, he goes, I'm getting together the reports. He goes, he did a murder here in, in East L.A., um, and it had, it had been quite, a, he was a juvenile when it happened and it was a gang murder. And he said, you know, he, he was prosecuted and convicted, went to juvenile hall and aged out at 25 and come to find out when he aged out, he was placed in a halfway house that was up the street from where his future wife lived and they met and ended up married and had three children the reason he came back, in my opinion, um, he had 
taken one of the daughters with him. And I think when he called and the sister answered the phone and she was acting like nothing happened, he thought, that'll be my alibi. I'll come back over, let everyone say goodbye to Melanie, and then we'll go inside and, oh, my God, somebody broke into the house and and murdered my family. You know, I kind of think that was his thought process. And then when he got there, he saw that, you know, all the police were there. They knew that something was up and he was going to go hide in the in the park. Um, that thing, that case took two years to get to trial. It was a capital case because of the multiple murders um, and his prior murder conviction. Um, his his defense was, I didn't do this, but if you think I did do it, I had a cocaine problem and it was probably a cocaine-induced psychosis. Um, we got through the uh, criminal case and they found him guilty. They found true all of the special circumstances that made it a death penalty case. And then we went into the penalty phase. And he had one of his own gig buddies show up to testify as a character witness and that he could never do anything like this. He loved his wife and children. There's no way you know, that he's responsible for this. And the defense attorney had gotten a a psychiatrist to interview Billy, but he didn't turn it over in discovery. Mm. So we didn't, he's going to call this witness and we don't even know who the witness is or what he's going to say. And the defense attorney said, you know, oh, I'm only going to question him about a very narrow part of his his uh, interview and and the judge we had was just a really sharp judge, and um, she looked at him and said, "Counselor, you know that's not the way it works." He says, "You have the witness here. Turn over a copy of the doctor's report." So he hands it to the deputy DA. Deputy, I'm sitting in it as the investigating officer. The deputy DA hands it over to me and says, "I'm going to listen to his direct examination. You read it and see if you know what I need to address." So. Um, the two little girls had multiple stab wounds. The only person that had any defense wound was the three-year-old. And you, you sit there as a detective, and you're going on, and you're and you're trying to, you know, why why would that be? And we talked to the family, and they said, well, you know, she was she could be a little scrappy little girl, and so we're thinking, okay, he came in and maybe he, you know, went to the older girl first and stabbed her first because she was older, and then the little girl woke up and and maybe just saw a big shadow and jumped on him, and that's how she ended up with a, a cut on her hand before she was murdered. So anyway, I'm reading through this doctor's report, and on the second time he interviewed the, the suspect, the suspect admitted to the murders and went in great detail about how they happened, that he broke in through the side window, there was a phone in the kitchen that he disabled, basically pulled the line out of the wall, that he went upstairs and that the mom and the daughter that he ended up taking with him were asleep in the bed. So he wakes up the mom, leaves that daughter in the bed, brings the mom down to the kitchen, and I don't. she was saying something to him, and he grabbed a knife out of the butcher block in the kitchen, grabbed her around the throat, stabbed her in the back, 
took her down, stabbed her several more times, said that as he took her down, she said, she called his name and said the children. And then his statement to the doctor was, I knew that that meant she wanted me to kill the kids. So I went into the downstairs room where the two, and she goes, I stabbed the older one, and then I stabbed the younger one. And I was walking out the door, and I could hear the younger one still crying. So I went back in, and I stabbed her some more. Well, he hid the knife in the trash can in the kitchen, and we found that during the crime scene. So the defense attorney hasn't gone into any of this during his direct examination. But he did have the doctor talk that his opinion was that the defendant did have a cocaine-induced psychosis. Now, this doctor that the defense attorney um, chose to do this is a very reputable doctor. He's used by the prosecution as much as he's used by the defense. He's a very straight shooter. He tells the truth. He gives you his opinion, but he does not you know, embellish. He's, does, he's not like, oh, you hired me. I'm only going to be for you. So they're finishing up, and they give us a couple of minutes because you know we've just been given the discovery, and I'm telling Sherry, he confesses on their second interview, and I have her read it, and she's just, I mean, we're both incredulous because it's great detail. So she says, okay, I'm ready. So she goes into her cross-examination of the doctor, and she says, Dr. So-and-so, you've testified that... Um, you believe that he had a cocaine-induced psychosis? And he says, yes, that's correct. He goes, do you think that that would um, lessen his ability to know the wrongfulness of his act or that what he was doing was criminal? And he goes, oh, no, not at all. He says, I'm not saying that this is a you know criminal insanity, that he didn't know the wrongfulness of his act. He says, in fact... He goes, I believe when I went through the case, he had hidden the murder weapon in a trash can. That in itself shows a consciousness of guilt. No, I'm not saying that at all. Um, she says, in fact, on your second interview with the defendant, he admitted to doing these murders, didn't he? He said, yes. She said, can you go through that? And he, and he read that off to, in front of the jury. And while he's reading it off, the guy that had been his character witness was in the back row of the gallery and he'd been mad-dogging me throughout. And so I just turned around and just stared at him while the doctor's reading his buddy's confession of murdering his oh. wife and two kids. So we that was the penalty phase. They came back and they gave him life without parole. They, they would not give him the death penalty. And there was one person on the jury, you know, the judge of course, thanks the jury for their service and then invites them back in the chambers and said, you know, thank you for your service. You know, the attorneys may want to talk to you and get your feelings on how the case went, why you decided to make the decision that you did. Is there anything that they could have done differently? And the jurors come out of the judge's chambers and they all ran over to the defense attorney and congratulated him on, you know, what he did and the reason that they decided life without parole would be better because the doctor had said that since he'd been in custody and away from using drugs, he, he was probably showing signs of, of some recovery and he's going to realize what he did and have to live with that the rest of his life. 
Well, I knew him from investigating this. He knew what he did. He didn't care. He smiled when they gave him life without. One juror came over to us, and it was an older gentleman that was in there. And I noticed when I was testifying, because I testified about the crime scene, you know I got a lot of kids. Um, there was a couple times when I, I choked up. I didn't cry because I'm a man. But no, I choked up. It, yeah. it was a hard case for me. It was a hard case for everybody that came to the scene that day. We all talked about it. We all went home and looked at our kids. Yeah. Um, but that man came over to the deputy, and he looked at me and, and my partner. And he said, what would have happened if I had hung on the, on, the, on the penalty phase? I said, we would have redone the penalty phase. He goes, I wish I'd known that. He said, these people from the get-go, from the start of deliberation, were looking for some reason not to give him the death penalty. And he said, I'm just, he goes, I'm just, I'm flabbergasted after listening to that trial and hearing what happened and what he did to those little children. And I, I said, you know, he'll never get out. I mean, he'll die in prison, but he's been able to move several times. At one time, they moved him to a prison that was actually closer to a family member. And I remember one of the family members calling me and saying, you know, John, I've got a gravesite to go visit. Mm-hmm. You know, he gets, he gets to be visited by his sister. Um, you said at one point though he did get he did get visited by somebody in prison. Well, no, not in prison, at oh, county jail. jail. Yeah. Um, apparently, when he got arrested, and like I said, it it did make the news, and not a lot of cases like that made the news, but because of the children involved, and he called his fellow gang members from East LA, and he wanted protection while he was in the county jail, and they. Basics said no. Yeah. And uh, they even called the family of the victims and said, we want you to know he's asked and we're not doing anything for him. And when he came to preliminary hearing the first time, he had most of his teeth knocked out. He had been beaten pretty badly in jail and they were having to move him into protective custody and stuff. Preliminary hearing was interesting too. We talked about interpreters. Yeah. The officers are the two detectives that found the eyewitness that saw him going through the side window. Yeah. They were using an interpreter. Both the detectives, you know, were not Spanish speakers. And um, so we had that witness come to court and he's on the stand and we've got a court interpreter there. And, you know, our deputy DA is asking him questions about, you know, and he's talking about earlier in the day. And he said, well, earlier in the day, I had seen the man at the house and he went to um, this box on the side of the house and he was doing something there. And we didn't know what it was. And he said, and then I recognized him again that night when I saw him and saw him go through the window. And this guy felt horrible that he didn't call the police when yeah. he saw him going through the window. But he, and he said, I'm know. thinking it's the, it's the husband, it's the father. He's just you know locked out or whatever. And, um, but I went back over his statement and I'm watching and you can see he was going in a chronological order and he was going to talk about seeing the guy go to the box during the day, earlier in the day. And one of the detectives said, well, going back to this here and, and rerouted the conversation. So that never came out. So I told Sherry, I'm going to go back over and see what the box is that he's talking about. Well, it was a phone line. 
And I talked to the family and they said, well, yeah, there's a separate phone line upstairs in Monica's room. Mm -hmm. He went over that afternoon and disabled the phone line. So I came out and had photos taken of all that and let Sherry know and wrote up a report and gave that to the defense and everything. And, and it was kind of interesting that the public defender he had at prelim had handled a couple of high-profile L.A. cases. She was pretty well-known in the L.A. area. I can't think of her name now to save my life. But she conflicted out of this case. Mm. And you could tell at prelim <clears throat> she didn't like him. Yeah. And she didn't like the case, and she and she found that she had handled a case of another gang <laughs> yeah. member from that gang. And she, oh, I've conflicted <laughs> out. And the poor guy that ended up with the case from the alternate public defender, his wife worked the DA's office as a deputy DA out of the domestic violence unit where oh, we wow. filed this case. Yeah, and so when she found out he was handling it, life at home was not happy yeah. for him. Yeah. And he's, you know, what am I going to do? I've been assigned this case. And over, I mean, the case went on, the trial went on with continuances for two years. And then part of that time, he got sick and actually developed a flesh-eating disease. Oh, and the almost died. Yeah, and we had to continue yeah. for that while he, when he recovered and came back. So this case was not a great case. He did, I think once he saw the, the report from the psychiatrist, his goal in the case was to save the guy's life. Well, let, let me save add, him from death penalty. Let me ask you one question on that. When did the interview with this, did the interview with the psychiatrist take place before he was found guilty of murder? Oh yeah. So way before, I mean, before we got to trial. So wait a second, wait a second, wait a second. So that the defense attorney was holding on to evidence that did, his client did not turn over that he did not discovery. turn over. Yeah. What happened and nothing happened to him for that. No. Shouldn't that be like disbarred? I don't know if disbarred, but he knows reciprocal discovery in California. He's supposed to turn everything over of the witnesses he's going to call. And like I said, when he made the play in court, the judge told him that's not the way this goes. And, Forced him to give. But did the DA file a bar complaint or not anything? That, not him? that I know of. Not that I know of. Wow. Well, I, I guess I'll. So you. I mean, 20, roughly twenty years with LAPD because. Yeah. Well, they, I, after Rampart, I I um, was taken up to robbery homicide division. And I was literally there for four minutes, four, <laughs> four months, months, and yeah. then I, you know, I got sick and, and uh, it took about um, two and a half, a little over, I, I had over 20 when they finally said, you know, we're, yeah. we're retiring you and then they made it um, retroactive. <laughs> so it was actually at 19 and a half years. Yeah. But um, yeah. No. What was, what was the, what was the best part of being a cop? It was my dream job. I mean, it was my dream job. I mean, working with people and, and you know, working with people that I got to work with. I mean, to this day, I'm still in contact with some of them and in contact with some of them because another friend of mine, Vic, mm -hmm. has a, a morning, he'll he'll make up these funnies that he does and send, sends them to us and then we all respond to him and talk back and forth. And But just guys that, that I 
I mean, I looked up to and idolized Greg Bielman, mm-hmm. uh, Leonard Mora, guys like that, and then uh, you know other guys that I worked with when they were when they were younger policemen, and and then of course Vic and Carlos. You know, they were both at South Bureau Homicide with me and at Seventy Seventh, and uh, just just guys that I looked up to as as being you know stellar cops. And just, was the worst part. Uh, the Maynard case was the worst part. Did you do it all again? Sorry. All right. Well, I thank you. Thank you. All right, well, everybody, thank you very much for uh, watching. We know we uh, did a little bit different here with the part one and part two series. Um, We know uh, a lot of people got long drives, a lot of travel during this week. We hope everyone has a a wonderful Thanksgiving with their family, a wonderful holiday season. Uh, Thank you very much, as always, for tuning in, for listening, for watching. We really appreciate it. We wish nothing but the best for you and your family for this holiday season. So happy Thanksgiving. And, uh, Thanks again, Dad. Thank you. This episode, as always, brought to you by Good Ranchers.